Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowich. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 29, Towering Inferno, 1895. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tesla, The Life and Times. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Steve, great to see a new episode in the feed, but why are you releasing this on a Sunday? Don't you usually release on Mondays? Did you get super confused by the switch to daylight savings time? No. Well, actually, that's kind of plausible, but, but, but no, that's not the reason. For this episode, I decided to post a bit early because of the significance of this date, March 13th, in Tesla's life. But we'll get to that in a minute. Because first, I want to relay some exciting news. According to Chartable, a podcast analytics and attribution service I use, Tesla, The Life and Times cracked their top 200 chart last week. According to Chartable, who's owned now by Spotify, so I figure they know what they're talking about, our show was number 139 in the U.S. out of all science-related podcasts, and globally it was ranked 161 for science-related podcasts out of the 5,000 podcasts they track across 20 different countries. Considering other people ranking in the science-related charts include Jordan Peterson and Bill Nye, and shows like The Story Collider and Sean Carroll's Mindscape, all of which must have huge numbers of listeners, well, I'd say my little show isn't doing too badly. Particularly since the show was still on hiatus last week. Curious to see how we'll do this week with a new episode in the feed. Anyway, all this to say thank you for listening to the show and sticking with me. I really didn't know if anyone would want to listen to this show when I started it, and I'm still kind of amazed that I get thousands of listens to each episode. So with that in mind, a quick thank you to the many folks who took time recently to drop me an email or get in touch via Facebook or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's really great to hear from people. So thank you to Robert Grimm, Eve Malsby, Gavin Replogle from Indiana, Sarah and Noah Pendergrass, and Shannon L. from the Chicago-ish area, who all sent me emails saying that they were enjoying the show, and a few of them to also check in and make sure I wasn't dead. Think I'll go for a walk. You're not fooling anyone, you know. Look, please know something you can do. I feel happy. From Facebook, thank you to those who left five-star reviews. Brett Prosser, who said this is his first podcast. Lavender Ann and Ashwin Shivakumar, who said the show goes, quote, beyond what anyone can hope to ever find online or in videos. Thank you, too, to Marcus Aurelius, Josh Paul Meester, and Jagmohan Lakwal, who all got in touch via Facebook to say that they were enjoying the show. Listener Anthony Lenzo reached out via Facebook to share a video in which none other than Maury Povich gives a shout-out to Nikola Tesla. Nikola Tesla, you are the father. Anthony is a camera operator on the Maury Povich show and got Maury to put this together last Father's Day. It's awesome and hilarious all at the same time, and it's posted now on the show website at teslapodcast.com. You absolutely must go check this out. Thanks again, Anthony. Over on Apple Podcast, thanks to listeners I am Gojatis, Lolo, who called the podcast, quote, very cinematic, Ryguy699, Sansfi55, a fellow Canadian, Tom W. King, who said he appreciated, one, the format with so much historical context, two, the quirky sense of humor, three, portraying Tesla as a human with flaws, and four, the diversion into the Gilded Age. Eight, Noah, 
who is not only an amateur radio operator, but who also wrote, quote, I was so excited when I saw new episodes, I peed a little. Thanks for listening, Noah, and I hope this episode doesn't make you wee too much. Iron Man, Funky Slick, another listener from Australia, Mr. Six Foot Nine, Doug exclamation mark 1970, which I'm choosing to read as Doug 1970, Ben Dressel, listening from Germany, SM Fargo 1, and Samba underscore 1094. And thanks to listener Gary Sutherland, who not only left a very kind review, but offered a pronunciation correction that I should note. Remarkably, it's not about my Serbian. Back in episode 12, and again in episode 27, I made reference to long-distance AC electric power transmission coming to downtown Portland, Oregon, thanks to a hydroelectric plant some 14 miles away. At the time, I pronounced the name of this water source for this hydroelectric power plant as the Williamette Falls, which is how it's written. Gary, a local in the area, assures me that while this is a common mispronunciation made by people from away, locals pronounce it closer to Williamette Falls. Thanks for the correction, Gary. I think it's similar to people who know you aren't local to my part of the world if you pronounce it Toronto, which is how it's spelled, rather than Tirana, which is how everybody says it. Listener Crafty00 says, I first found this podcast on Audible and then finished the series on Apple Podcasts. The author is easygoing and adds a touch of humor to an incredible story. Tesla is a man who had so much talent and ambition that it's hard to believe he was real. Starting each year of Tesla's life with what was happening in history was a great touch. I enjoy the show so much I may start over and listen again. And speaking of Audible, we have our first review from Audible. Listener Audinette left 5 stars for story, 5 stars for performance, and 5 stars overall, so I'm counting this as my first ever 15-star review. She says in part, 5 stars for content and performance in this ongoing podcast. The author, writer, podcaster Stephen Kotowicz has great voice performance that will not make you fall asleep. Despite my technical background and deep interest in science and engineering, I still find most Tesla books out there to be droning narratives and difficult to binge listen to. Not this podcast. This is one of the greatest non-fiction additions to the Audible catalog recently. Well, shucks, Audinette. Thank you. She also mentions some of the audio issues uh, and that they do improve over time. If you're finding the volume of the sound effects too loud, I do plan once again to go back and correct this. However, it remains a matter of time. Either I spend it remastering old episodes or I spend it working on new ones. While I think things have improved a great deal from the earliest episodes, in the hopes of avoiding this problem entirely in future, I've come up with a new workflow that I think should solve the problem. I've been using a program that normalizes the volume of the entire track. Basically, it makes sure the volume of the track is as loud as it can be without distorting. What is that thing you're doing? It's technical. So, I've added an extra step, beginning with this episode, in which I export the audio track minus the sound effects, do the normalizing, re-import it, add the sound effects back in, and then send it back out again at hopefully a more listener-friendly volume uh, to my podcast host. It adds a little bit of work and time to the post-production, but I think it gives me better control over the final volume of the whole track, so hopefully people's ears won't bleed anymore, particularly if they're listening through headphones. Drop me a line and let me know if the sound effects and music cues from here on out are at a better volume. If so, when I do go back, and I will, promise, remaster the old episodes, I'll use this same trick. And finally, listener Abe Suleiman was kind enough to send over a link from The Economist about a New Zealand company working to transmit power wirelessly through the air, 
first at a test facility, and then later from a solar farm on the North Island to a client several kilometers away. It's a really fascinating look at how this company is using technology first trialed by NASA to send power wirelessly via microwave beams to bring power to residential and commercial settings. I've included a link to the article in this episode's show notes at teslapodcast.com. Definitely worth a read. Thanks for sending it along, Abe. If you ever come across any news articles related to Nikola Tesla that you think I should have a look at, please send me a link. Email me at tesla at kotowich.com and I'll have a look. Thank you again to everyone who took time to reach out with a comment or a review, and particularly to the many of you who said you just recently found the show and were binging it. It's always great to hear. It's certainly how I enjoy listening to podcasts, and your feedback means the world to me. Okay, now, down to business. As this episode only covers events from the early part of 1895, I'm only going to look at notable events from the first half of the year this time, but there are quite a few. On January 12th, in England, the National Trust for Places of Historic Interest or Natural Beauty is founded. Commonly known as the National Trust, it's a charity for heritage conservation in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. There is a separate and independent National Trust for Scotland. One of the largest landowners in the United Kingdom, thanks to land gifts and purchases via public appeal over the decades, the Trust owns over 248,000 hectares, which is 610,000 acres, or 2,480 square kilometers, or 960 square miles, of land, as well as 780 miles of coastline. Its properties include over 500 historic houses, castles, archaeological and industrial monuments, gardens, parks, and nature reserves. Many buildings they own have architectural significance, with others being rather plain buildings that have historical importance or connection to famous historical figures. The Trust, for instance, owns the childhood homes of both Paul McCartney and John Lennon. On February 9th, in Holyoke, Massachusetts, William G. Morgan creates the sport of mintonette, which is later, thankfully, renamed volleyball. February 14th sees the debut of Oscar Wilde's last play, the comedy The Importance of Being Earnest, at St. James Theatre in London. 1895 would quickly go downhill for Wilde, as we'll see in a minute. On February 20th, as we've talked about a couple of times already, the gold reserve of the U.S. Treasury was saved when J.P. Morgan and the Rothschilds family loaned $65 million worth of gold to the United States government. That's the equivalent of $2.1 billion today. I'm not 100% sure what syndicate bonds are. I might be 100% unsure what they are, in fact. But I know that they were popular because the offering of syndicate bonds related to this loan sold out within 22 minutes of the New York market opening and just two hours after going on sale in London. Rebellions taking place on February 25th marked the start of the Cuban War of Independence. Now, as I mentioned, I'm releasing this episode on March 13th, 2022 for a reason, and it's because on March 13th, 1895, exactly 127 years to the day, Nikola Tesla experienced, uh, well, well, wait a minute now, it's, maybe I shouldn't say anything since that's kind of what this episode is all about. I, uh, I wouldn't want to spoil anything. Uh, well, so just hang on a minute. We'll, we'll get there. On March 15th, the Ides of March, something genuinely bizarre occurs in County Tipperary, Ireland. A young woman named Bridget Cleary is killed and her body burned by her husband, Michael. That's horrifying, certainly, but it's not the bizarre part. The bizarre part is his stated defense. Michael claimed that his wife had been abducted by fairies and a changeling had been left in her place. Now, these aren't some cute Disney-fied idea you may have of what fairies are. These are vexatious, malevolent, supernatural creatures from classic folklore. 
and a changeling would have been seen as a dangerous, evil, imposter creature. Cleary claimed he was innocent of his wife's murder because he had slain only the changeling, and since there are no laws against killing fairies, why exactly did he think his wife was replaced by a changeling? Well, for a start, the house Michael and Bridget lived in was supposedly built on the site of an ancient fairy ring fort. Fairy forts are the remains of any prehistoric stone circle or hill fort or other dwelling in Ireland. Bridget took ill in early March 1895. More than a week into her illness, on the 13th of March, a physician visited her at her home. Her condition was considered grave enough that a priest was called to administer last rites. When her condition failed to improve, for some reason, both Bridget's husband and her father accused her of being a fairy sent to take Bridget's place. They attempted a folk remedy exorcism to cast out the fairy. Friends reported her missing on March 16th, but her body wasn't found until March 22nd, at which time nine people, including her husband and father, were charged in her disappearance. Most of these people received sentences of varying degrees, but the harshest sentence was reserved for Michael Cleary. He was found guilty of manslaughter, serving 15 years of a 20-year sentence before emigrating to Montreal in 1910, where he disappears from the historical record. The case has, not surprisingly, been the subject of much scholarly examination and popular fascination over the last 127 years. There's even an Irish nursery rhyme that goes, Are you a witch, or are you a fairy, or are you the wife of Michael Clary? On March 30th, in Germany, Rudolf Diesel patents the diesel engine. On April 6th, Oscar Wilde is arrested in London for gross indecency after losing a criminal libel case against the Marcus of Queensbury. Wilde had sued Queensbury for criminal libel and had Queensbury arrested after Queensbury accused Wilde publicly of being gay. Queensbury was apparently angered by the ongoing affair between his son Alfred and Wilde. The trial was a sensation at the time, with scenes of near hysteria in the courtroom in both the press and public galleries. Ultimately, Wilde dropped the libel case when Queensbury's lawyer informed the court that they intended to call several male prostitutes as witnesses against Wilde. Queensbury won a counterclaim against Wilde for legal expenses and private detective fees. Wilde was left bankrupt. His assets were seized and sold at auction to pay the claim. Told you it was downhill for Wilde after the debut of his play. Not content with ruining the man financially, Queensbury then sent to Scotland Yard the evidence of Wilde's dalliances that had been collected by his private detectives, and that evidence resulted in Wilde being charged and convicted of gross indecency. He received a two-years sentence of hard labor, during which he wrote De Profundis. Upon release, Wilde immediately went into exile in France, his health and reputation destroyed. Remember back in episode 25 when we talked about China and Japan going to war over their rival claims of influence on their common ally, Korea? Well, after eight months of war, on April 17th, the Treaty of Shimonoseki is signed between China and Japan, marking the end of the First Sino-Japanese War. As part of the terms, the defeated Qing Empire is forced to renounce its claims on Korea and to concede part of Taiwan and the Pescadores Islands to Japan. The huge indemnity extracted from China was used to establish the Yawata Iron and Steel Works in Japan. Nearly 50 years later, the Yawata Iron and Steel Works was producing a quarter of the rolled steel used for the Japanese war effort during World War II. The factory was so important to the Japanese war effort that it was the original target for the second atomic bomb the United States dropped on Japan on August 9, 1945. However, due to cloud cover, this bomb was eventually redirected to Nagasaki. The Treaty of Shimonoseki was to have profound implications throughout the rest of 1895. On April 22nd, 
603 members of what is known as the Gongqi Shangsu movement signed a 10,000-word petition against the Treaty of Shimonoseki. On May 2nd, thousands of these scholars and citizens protested against the treaty in Beijing. On May 24th, anti-Japanese officials in Taiwan declared independence as a reaction to the terms of the treaty, forming the short-lived Republic of Formosa. On October the 8th, the Korean Empress Myung Song is betrayed by her soldiers and killed by Japanese agents within her private residence at the Imperial Palace. And on October 23rd, the city of Tainan, last stronghold of the Republic of Formosa, surrenders to the forces of the Empire of Japan, ending the short-lived Republic and beginning the era of Japanese rule over Taiwan that would not end until the Japanese defeat in the Second World War. Circling back to May 1895, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that the federal government had the right to regulate interstate commerce, legalizing the military suppression of the nationwide Pullman Railway workers' strike a year earlier. These things take some time to move through the courts. The military-led union busting saw 12,000 United States Army soldiers, as well as thousands of United States Marshals, dispatched to cities around the United States to crack as many skulls as necessary to end the rail strike. 30 strikers were killed and 57 were wounded, with property damage exceeding $80 million. That's $2.4 billion today. Remember how I've said from time to time that the Gilded Age has echoes of our own era? Well, if you think that the relationship between business, lobbyists, and politicians is a little too cozy today, or that the revolving door which sees lobbyists get cabinet jobs or politicians become lobbyists is pretty egregious, well, get this. The federal troops sent to break up the strike were under orders from President Grover Cleveland. Commander-in-Chief makes sense. They were also under orders from U.S. Attorney General Richard Olney. Olney had not only been an attorney for the railroad companies before he was U.S. Attorney General, but while he was U.S. Attorney General, he was still receiving a $10,000 a year retainer from the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad. That's more than the $8,000 a year salary he earned as U.S. Attorney General, and was the equivalent of $305,000 today. Does that seem, I don't know, fishy to anyone else? Who was he actually working for, do you think? History doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme. Other notable events in 1895 include... The world's first portable handheld electric drill is developed by brothers Wilhelm and Karl Fein in Germany. Konstantin Silikovsky proposes the concept of the space elevator. A space elevator is a theoretical type of planet-to-space transportation system that doesn't require rockets. Also in 1895, W.E.B. Du Bois becomes the first African-American to receive a Ph.D. from Harvard University. The Swarovski Company is founded in Austria. The name HP sauce is first registered in the United Kingdom as a trademark for a brown sauce, and the Duck Reach power station opens in Tasmania, making it the first publicly owned hydroelectric plant in the Southern Hemisphere. Famous births in 1895 include, on January the 1st, J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, was born. Hoover was instrumental in founding the FBI in 1935 and remained its director for another 37 years until his death in 1972. Hoover is credited with building the FBI and instituting a number of modernizations to police technology, such as a centralized fingerprint file and forensic laboratories, which make solving crimes at both local and national levels easier. However, later in life, and especially after his death, Hoover became a controversial figure as evidence of his secretive abuses of power began to surface. 
he was found to have routinely exceeded the jurisdiction of the FBI, used the FBI to harass political dissenters and activists, collected evidence using illegal methods, and amassed secret files on political leaders which he used to intimidate and threaten them, including multiple sitting U.S. presidents, to get his way and remain in power. Once he died, they changed the law so that no one could remain in that position for so long and amass that kind of power ever again. Leroy Roy Grumman was born on January 4th. An American aeronautical engineer, test pilot, and industrialist, in 1929 he co-founded Grumman Aircraft Engineering, later renamed Grumman Aerospace Corporation. Grumman Aerospace built such notable aircraft as the F-14 Tomcat, which was so central to the 1986 film Top Gun, and most impressive to me, the Apollo Lunar Module, the lander spacecraft that was flown between lunar orbit and the moon's surface during NASA's Apollo program. It was the first manned spacecraft to operate exclusively in the airless vacuum of space and remains the only crewed vehicle to land anywhere beyond the Earth. After being acquired in 1994, Roy Grumman's company is now part of Northrop Grumman, a global aerospace and defense technology company that builds things like the B-2 stealth bomber and the Global Hawk surveillance drone. On February 2nd, George Hallas, American football player, coach, and co-founder of the National Football League, was born. Also in sporting births, on February 6th, George Herman Babe Ruth Jr., the Babe, the Sultan of Swat, the Bambino, was born. His big league career spanned 22 seasons, from 1914 through 1935. While he started as a star left-handed pitcher for the Boston Red Sox, the Babe achieved his great fame as a slugging outfielder for the New York Yankees. Ruth established many MLB batting and some pitching records, including career home runs, 714, runs batted in, that's RBIs, 2,213, base on balls, 2,062, slugging percentage of 690, and on-base plus slugging, OPS, of 1.164. Those last two, slugging percentage and OPS, still stand today. Elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1936 as one of its first five inaugural members, Ruth is considered by many to be the greatest baseball player of all time. And your fun fact for today. On September the 5th, 1914, while a member of the Red Sox minor league club, the Providence Grays, Ruth pitched a one-hit, 9 nothing route of the Toronto Maple Leafs, not to be confused with the NHL team of the same name, and he hit his first professional home run, a three-run dinger over the right field wall, and his only one as a minor leaguer, off pitcher Ellis Johnson at the Maple Leaf Park Stadium on Hanlon's Point in the Toronto Islands. Yep, Babe Ruth's first professional homer was hit right here in Canada. A historic plaque commemorates the occasion near the Hanlon's Point dock. And our third sporting-related birth, on February 15th, Earl John Tommy Thompson was born in the town of Birch Hills in what is now Saskatchewan. In 1920, he became the first Olympic gold medalist in 110-meter hurdles from outside the United States. The world record he set there of 14.4 seconds stood until 1931. On March 4th, Samuel Horowitz, better known by his stage name Shemp Howard, was born. The third born of the five Horowitz brothers, Shemp is best known today as the fourth stooge, replacing his younger brother Curly alongside Larry and Moe after Curly's death. On May 1st, Nikolai Yezov, Soviet politician and secret police chief, is born. Under the rule of Joseph Stalin, Yesov was head of the NKVD from 1936 to 1938 during the height of the Great Purge, in which he presided over mass arrests and executions. 
Historians estimate that between 950,000 and 1.2 million people died during the Great Purge, also called the Great Terror, which consisted of the large-scale repression of relatively wealthy peasants, kulaks, ethnic cleansing operations, purges of the Communist Party, government officials, and the Red Army leadership, widespread police surveillance, accusations of saboteurs and counter-revolutionaries, imprisonments, and arbitrary executions. As with so many in Stalin's orbit, Yeshov eventually fell from Stalin's favor and was arrested and confessed, or rather was made to confess via torture, to a range of anti-Soviet activity. He was executed by Stalin's order in 1940, along with most others responsible for the Great Purge. May 6th saw the birth of Rodolfo Alfonso Raffaello Pierre Filiberto Guilmi de Valentina de Antonguela, known professionally as Rudolf Valentino. An Italian actor based in the United States, Valentino was a silent film star and renowned sex symbol of the time. Hollywood moguls invented the title The Latin Lover to promote his status as sex symbol. His premature death at the age of 31, due to post-surgery complications, was international news, and his funeral several months later was a circus. An estimated 100,000 people lined the streets of Manhattan to pay their respects, handled by the Frank Campbell Funeral Home. Hysteria overtook some of his fans. Women committed suicide. How about Rosemary Schultz? She slashed her wrist when Valentino died. And an all-day riot erupted on August 24th. Over 100 mounted officers and NYPD's police reserve had to be called in to restore order. A phalanx of officers lined the streets for the remainder of the viewing. On May 8th, Fulton J. Sheen, an American Catholic archbishop, was born. The author of more than 70 books of spiritual writing, Sheen is best known for his preaching, first on radio in the 1930s, when his broadcasts routinely drew 2 million listeners, and later on television, beginning in the 1950s, when his show drew as many as 30 million people weekly. Sheen's TV program aired on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m., opposite ratings heavyweights Milton Berle and Frank Sinatra. While never besting them, Sheen gave them a run for their money many weeks. Sheen passed away in 1979 and is currently a candidate for sainthood in the Catholic Church. And a bonus fun fact for today. When he had to choose a stage name, young actor Ramon Antonio Gerardo Estevez chose a name that was a combination of CBS casting director Robert Dale Martin, who gave him his first big break, and Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. That is how Ramon Estevez became Martin Sheen. Butterball has a hotline? Famous deaths in the first half of 1895 include On January 24th, Lord Randolph Churchill, British statesman and father of Sir Winston Churchill. Lord Churchill first formulated the policy of progressive conservatism known as Tory democracy, declaring that the conservatives ought to adopt, rather than oppose, popular reforms, the better to challenge the claims of liberals that they were the champion of the masses. On January 26th, Arthur Cayley, a prolific British mathematician who worked mostly on algebra and who helped found the modern British school of pure mathematics, dies. Early February saw the death of several key players in the First Sino-Japanese War that we talked about a few minutes ago. On February 9th, Odura Yazuzumi, a Japanese general, was killed in action at the Battle of Weihaiwei, making him both the most senior military figure and the only general on the Japanese side to be killed during the war. The next day, after the Japanese won the Battle of Weihaiwei and routed the Qing forces, Chinese admirals Liu Buchan and Ding Ruchan committed suicide by an overdose of opium. On February 20th, Frederick Douglass dies. After escaping from slavery in Maryland, Douglass became a national leader of the abolitionist movement in Massachusetts and New York, 
in the lead-up to the American Civil War, becoming famous for his oratory and incisive anti-slavery writing. Accordingly, he was described by abolitionists in his time as a living counterexample to slaveholders' arguments that slaves lacked the intellectual capacity to function as independent American citizens. Douglas wrote three autobiographies describing his experiences as a slave. These became bestsellers and influential in promoting the cause of abolition. Douglas also actively supported women's suffrage and held several public offices. Without his permission, Douglas became the first African-American nominated for Vice President of the United States as the running mate and vice presidential nominee of Victoria Woodhull on the Equity Rights Party ticket. We spoke about Victoria Woodhull briefly in the episode on the Gilded Age, and I mentioned that Douglas was her running mate, though at the time, I didn't realize he'd been volunteered without his consent. On March 9th, Leopold von Sacker Masek, the Austrian writer for whom the word masochism is named, dies. And on May 19th, José Martí, Cuban independence leader, dies. Born in Havana when it was still part of the Spanish Empire, Martí began his political activism for an independent Cuba at an early age. He traveled extensively in Spain, Latin America, and the United States, raising awareness and support for the cause of Cuban independence. His unification of the Cuban emigre community, particularly in Florida, was crucial to the success of the Cuban War of Independence against Spain. He was a key figure in the planning and execution of this war, as well as the designer of the Cuban Revolutionary Party and its ideology. He was killed in action during the Battle of Dos Rios. Now then, back in episode 26, before we detoured to witness the end of the War of the Currents for a couple of episodes, we watched Tesla become the darling of New York high society and spent time with him and his fancy new friends exploring his laboratory. And, as 1895 dawns for Tesla, his lab is where we'll spend most of our time this episode too, looking at the momentous events from the first few months of the new year, all of which center, in one way or another, around Tesla's lab. You'll recall from the last few War of the Currents episodes that Edward Dean Adams, the driving force behind the promotion of hydroelectric power at Niagara, relied on Tesla's advice at a crucial moment in 1893 when his company had to decide between using AC or DC for Niagara. Now, a few years later, and feeling like Tesla hadn't steered him wrong, Adams visited Tesla's lab at 3335 South 5th Avenue. After seeing several demonstrations, Adams agreed to promote Tesla's latest inventions, and together they launched the Nikola Tesla Company in February 1895. So, what would Adams have seen Tesla hard at work on? In early 1895, Tesla was pursuing four main lines of research. One was his oscillator, his combination steam engine and electric generator, which Tesla regarded, quote, as a practically perfected machine, but which, of course, suggests many new lines of thought every day. Second was his new wireless lighting system, while the third, quote, was the transmission of intelligence any distance without wires. And the fourth, according to Tesla, touched, quote, on the nature of electricity. Since this new company was going to promote not only Tesla's recent high-frequency patents, but also those assigned earlier to Peck and Brown, remember them from episode 10, Adams and Tesla included Alfred Brown as a director in the new company. In addition, they invited another Niagara promoter, J.P. Morgan's lawyer William Rankine, who we met back in episode 28, as well as a Charles F. Coney to serve as directors. The Nikola Tesla company planned to manufacture and sell machinery, generators, motors, and electrical apparatus, and the directors planned to issue $500,000 of stock to capitalize it, 
equivalent to $16.7 million today. If all the stocks sold, Tesla's share of the funds would have enabled him to develop his high-frequency inventions. But it still wouldn't have been enough to manufacture anything on a commercial scale. So, despite the claim that the Nikola Tesla company was going to manufacture electrical apparatus, it appears the plan was much more in line with the patent-promote-sell model that Peck and Brown had used back in the 1880s. This strategy had also worked for Tesla in the sale of his European rights to his motor patents in 1892. The real goal of the company likely would have been that, once Tesla's lighting system and oscillator had been perfected, then either the patents or the entire company would be sold. Not unlike a successful tech startup today that develops some clever app or digital service and then gets bought up by Google or Facebook or Amazon. I told you this era had a lot of similarities to our own. Adams eventually invested about $100,000 of his own money in Tesla's work for a controlling interest in, quote, 14 U.S. patents, many foreign patents, and any future innovations which Tesla might conceive. But there were few other takers. As in, none. Why not? After all, Tesla apparently had half a dozen entirely new inventions in the works. Mechanical oscillators that might replace the steam engine, electrical oscillators that were key to his system of fluorescent lighting, remote control, and his now secret work in wireless transmission. And there were more out there ideas he'd mused about, including ozone production, cheap refrigeration, the cheap manufacture of liquid oxygen, and the manufacture of fertilizers and nitric acid from the air. One factor? Poor business conditions. You'll recall our discussion of the Panic of 1893 back in our episode on the Gilded Age. Well, that panic led to a five-year-long recession in the United States. During the mid-1890s, neither the existing electrical manufacturers nor utility companies were especially profitable. There was no incentive for investors to take a chance on Tesla's next-generation technology when the companies using the previous-generation DC lighting or AC power generators weren't earning any money. A second factor holding back the success of the Nikola Tesla company? Nikola Tesla himself. Tesla's ideas were all more or less still on the drawing board, and he had gained his backers because of his track record in AC and because of the promise held by his various oscillators. But Tesla had a problem developing his ideas for commercial purposes after his initial burst of inspiration. His biographer, W. Bernard Carlson, suggests this is due to the challenge of switching from divergent thinking, the fun stage where you come up with lots of ideas and designs, and moving to convergent thinking, in which you focus on perfecting the most promising version and making it reliable, efficient, and cost-effective. For a mind like Tesla's, convergent thinking was probably deadly boring. A notable faculty of Tesla's mind is that of rushing intuition, noted one reporter. You begin to state a question or proposition to him, and before you have half-formulated it, he has suggested six ways of dealing with it and ten of getting around it. But in the mid-1890s, Tesla seems to have just given up on doing development work entirely. Instead, he focused on the variety in his invention work. In his lectures, he wouldn't just show the best style of a lamp, he would show a dozen variations of various quality and potential. Every few months, Tesla would invite reporters into his lab so they could write up his latest discovery, but rather than getting across the power of Tesla's genius, the flightiness that came across in these articles scared off investors. They were worried, rightly it turned out, 
that Tesla would never buckle down and get to the nitty-gritty of creating a marketable product. And none of Tesla's partners were in a position to rein him in. Heck had died unexpectedly in 1890, and while Brown was on the board of the company, he didn't get involved in Tesla's inventions. Adams and Rankine were talented businessmen, but they were too busy with Niagara Falls to focus too hard on Tesla's work back in Manhattan. And besides, they were finance guys and not experts in patent strategy or engineering who could steer Tesla's technical work. And, as if to double down on avoiding development work, when there was no investment interest in his wireless lighting system and his oscillator, instead of refocusing his efforts and doing the work to make them more efficient and thus more attractive to investors, Tesla decided instead to expand the scope of his plans. Instead of a system to light a few rooms, he would look to power the whole Earth instead. See what I mean? After spending several years entertaining visitors with his phosphorescent lamps and oscillating transformer, Tesla decided that these were little more than party tricks. A system of power transmission based on the same principle was absolutely worthless, he would later explain. Tesla rejected the idea of transmitting power using electromagnetic waves through the ether or atmosphere for both practical and theoretical reasons. Thinking about his experiments, in which his transmitter was connected to both an antenna and to the ground, Tesla understood two things to be happening during this setup. Electromagnetic waves radiated out from the antenna and a current passed into the ground. But because the waves traveled into space in all directions and away from the receiver, Tesla was frustrated by the energy loss. That energy which goes out in the form of rays, said Tesla, is unrecoverable, hopelessly lost. You can operate a little receiving instrument by catching a billionth part of it, but except this, all goes out into space, never to return. As a result of this inefficiency, Tesla didn't see much point in exploring electromagnetic waves any further. Instead, it was what happened when the current passed into the ground that intrigued Tesla. Why not, wondered Tesla, have the transmitter send waves of current through the Earth to a receiver and then use electromagnetic waves in the atmosphere for the return circuit? By using the ground current in this way, Tesla believed more energy could be sent from the transmitter to the receiver. In making his decision, Tesla was turning his back on the thinking of other early wireless pioneers, Hertz, Lodge, and Marconi, who focused their efforts on transmitting electromagnetic waves through the air. Just as Tesla had invented his AC motor by bucking the prevailing thinking, he looked to do the same with wireless power by inverting the roles played by electromagnetic waves and the ground current in his high-frequency apparatus. For Tesla, it was the ground current that should transmit energy and the electromagnetic waves which would serve as a simple return mechanism to complete the circuit. Tesla would later decide that the circuit was completed by assuming an electric current could be conducted through the upper atmosphere. Unfortunately, while such revolutionary thinking had led Tesla to great innovations in AC power, they would not prove as successful when it came to wireless power transmission. Tesla's thinking here reveals itself as based on 19th century practices in power and telegraphic engineering, which emphasized complete circuits, and not on the electromagnetic theory that had sprung from the work of James Clerk Maxwell. You might recall back in episode 17, we talked about how Tesla decided from time to time that major theories widely held to be accurate within the scientific community were wrong, and that he, Tesla, was in the right. Now, this attitude is what drove Tesla to his greatest insights and innovations when he rejected the supposed impossibility of an AC motor and power system. But it was to prove a fatal flaw and a reminder that scientists, and everyone else really, 
should strive to remain humble and skeptical at all times. Someone always knows more than you do. Tesla's experiments with Geissler tubes and his early neon lights made him believe that the findings of Hertz and Maxwell about the nature of electromagnetic waves were in error. By drawing this incorrect conclusion, he was setting himself on a path that would lead farther and farther away from core scientific consensus and down experimental paths that were doomed to failure. But Steve, I can hear some of you say, how can you claim that Tesla's later work was doomed to failure? Maybe Maxwell was wrong, and Tesla was right all the time. Maybe it was just that Tesla never had the funding he needed to make his breakthrough. Or maybe the government and the energy companies are keeping his innovation secret because they don't want us all to have free energy. Well, how do I know? Let me ask you this. Do you have a cell phone? Are you listening to this podcast on a smartphone or maybe through Bluetooth earbuds? Where do those devices get their signals to connect wirelessly to networks and make phone calls or download your favorite podcast about the life of Nikola Tesla? Is it through the ground? No, it's through the air, using electromagnetic signals. Congratulations, you've just helped prove Maxwell's theory correct. We know that Maxwell was right because the technology we have that is based on his foundational work, it works, reliably. And unfortunately, Tesla's wireless system never did. Maxwell was no slouch. His discoveries helped usher in the era of modern physics, laying the foundation for Einstein's special relativity as well as quantum mechanics. Many physicists regard Maxwell as the 19th century scientist who had the greatest influence on 20th century physics. Though he's not nearly as well known outside the field, Maxwell's contributions to science are considered by many physicists to be of the same magnitude as those of Isaac Newton or Albert Einstein. In the Millennium Poll, a survey of the 100 most prominent physicists, Maxwell was voted the third greatest physicist of all time, behind only Newton and Einstein. And, unfortunately, it was the dawning of this new era in physics, the one that would revolutionize our world in the 20th century, that Tesla was rejecting entirely by deciding that he was right and everyone else was wrong. These were the first steps down the wrong path, the path that would dominate the rest of his career and the commitment to which would prevent him from ever achieving anything like the breakthroughs that he'd made in his early years in the electrical field. Tesla had realized for a number of years that the Earth carried a charge, which is part of why he decided to utilize the planet itself as a carrier of electrical energy. If the Earth was full of potential energy, he reasoned, it could be tapped into and transmission lines would be superfluous. Having decided to maximize the ground current and minimize the electromagnetic waves radiating from his apparatus, Tesla began to use very large inducers and very small capacitors in his transmitting circuit, connecting them to the ground, usually via the water main system, in order to determine the frequency of the Earth's electrical charge. In his first experiment with ground currents, Tesla used a tall, cone-shaped coil powered by a high-frequency current from an alternator and a bank of condensers. While one terminal of the coil was grounded, the other was left free in space. When the power was turned on, quote, Purple streamers of electricity were thus elicited from the earth and poured out into the ambient air. But what caused this outpouring of electrical streamers? For Tesla, they were evidence that he was tapping the earth's electricity. As T.C. Martin wrote at the time, If Tesla has not yet actually determined the earth's precise electrical charge or capacity, he has obtained striking effects which conclusively demonstrate that he has succeeded in disturbing it. 
When his oscillations are in harmony with the individual vibrations of the earth, an intense vibration or surging will be obtained. Martin suggested, and it's unclear whether this is his own imagination or something Tesla mused about, that once the Tesla device was perfected, not only could information and power be transmitted, but it might be used to modify the planet's weather. And he ended the article with something that Tesla definitely did suggest as a possibility, that, quote, perchance we shall call up Mars in this same way someday, the electrical charge of both planets being used as signals. More on the Martian connection in a later episode. Tesla was now convinced that rather than simply sending a current from one point to another on the Earth's surface, it was possible to transmit power by using resonance. By pumping electrical oscillations into the ground at the Earth's resonant frequency, Tesla thought he might be able to broadcast power around the entire planet. Tesla believed that he would not need to pump huge amounts of electrical energy into the Earth, only a small amount was needed at the right frequency to serve as the trigger, and the Earth's natural resonance would do the rest. This belief harkened back to an experience from his childhood that we recounted way back in episode 2, that when young Tesla and some friends were tromping out in the snowy mountains of his homeland, they took to rolling snowballs down the mountain and accidentally triggered an avalanche. Witnessing this avalanche begin from such a small cause left a profound mark on Tesla and convinced him of the tremendous forces stored up in nature that can be released by small triggering forces. The search for such triggers influenced many of his later experiments, including his quest for wireless energy through the resonance of the Earth. But in pursuing four lines of research at once, Tesla was wearing himself out. During a visit to his lab in March 1895, a reporter described Tesla with the following. I was a trifle shocked the first time I saw Nikola Tesla, as he suddenly appeared before me and sank into a chair, seemingly in a state of utter dejection. Tall, straight, gaunt, and sinewy of frame like a true Slav, with clear blue eyes and small mobile mouth fringed with a boyish mustache, he looked younger than his thirty-seven years. But what arrested my attention chiefly at the moment was the pallid, drawn, and haggard appearance of the face. While scanning it closely, I plainly read a tale of overwork and of tremendous mental strain that must soon reach the limits of human endurance. Tesla was aware excessive work was taking a toll on him. This was a repeating pattern with Tesla throughout his life, frantic exertion followed by total physical collapse. But, as he explained to the reporter, he couldn't stop working. These experiments of mine are so important, so beautiful, so fascinating, that I can hardly tear myself away from them to eat, and when I try to sleep I think about them constantly. I expect that I shall go on until I break down altogether. And it was in this physical and mental state that Tesla suffered one of the great tragedies of his life. At 2.30 a.m. on Wednesday, March 13, 1895, a fire broke out at 3335 South 5th Avenue, which is now West Broadway, near Bleecker Street, in the building containing Tesla's laboratory. Now, given all the electrical equipment in Tesla's lab, you might expect that it was the sparks those devices threw off that somehow set the building ablaze. That turns out to not be the case, however. The building's night watchman said definitively that the fire started on the floors below Tesla's lab. Keen listeners might remember in episode 26 I mentioned that on the floors below Tesla's lab there was a dry cleaners and either a pipe cutting business or a steam fitting manufacturer depending on the source you consult. And I mentioned that this fact would be important later. Well, now is later. Because it was in the premises of one of these two businesses where the fire began. However, there is debate as to which one was the origin of the blaze. 
One source suggests the pipe cutter had over time, quote, saturated the loft building with oil and it burned like a tinderbox, making the watchman's bucket of water futile in trying to put out the blaze. It's also possible, however, that the chemicals used by the dry cleaners could have been the culprit. Mark J. Seifer says in his Tesla biography that some investigators intimated at the time that the night watchman himself may have been responsible, perhaps by smoking carelessly near some oily rags. Margaret Cheney, in her biography, says that it was a gas jet on the first floor that ignited the oil-soaked rags. Whatever the cause, and wherever exactly the fire started, the results are not in dispute. The fire gutted the six-story building, and Tesla lost everything. The fire was so intense that the whole loft building imploded, with the upper floors collapsing down onto the lower. Tesla's lab, which had been on the fourth floor, was now suddenly on the second floor. O'Neill says that Tesla also had equipment on another floor of the building, but the Inferno claimed it all. Interestingly, Margaret Cheney suggests that one reason the fire burned so intensely might have been due to a supply of liquid oxygen, a highly flammable substance commonly used today as part of rocket fuel, contained in Tesla's lab. As we mentioned earlier, one of Tesla's research ideas at the time was a way to cheaply manufacture liquid oxygen, which had lucrative industrial applications. It's unclear how far Tesla had progressed down this road of research, or whether he ever actually manufactured any liquid oxygen, but it's an interesting theory for the consuming fury of the blaze. Or it could just be due to oil-soaked timbers and dry-cleaning chemicals. Without hope of saving the building, all the firefighters, who battled the blaze for three hours, could do was to prevent the flames spreading to an adjacent box factory and the nearby elevated railroad. As dawn broke, the New York Sun reported, all that remained were, quote, two tottering brick walls and the yawning jaws of a somber cavity aswim with black water and oil. In a single night, reported the New York Herald, the fruits of ten years of toil and research were swept away. The web of a thousand wires, which at Tesla's bidding thrilled with life, had been twisted by fire into a tangled skein. Machines, to the perfection of which he gave all that was best of a mastermind, are now shapeless things, and vessels which contain the results of patient experiments are heaps of potsherds. Fortunately, for once, Tesla had not been working late at night on some apparatus, or he might have been trapped in the flames. Instead, Tesla discovered what had happened only the next morning as he strolled down the street to work around 10 a.m. Imagine the charred, smoldering wreck that greeted him. It cannot be true, he repeated again and again, as he paced in front of the spot where the building used to be. His 15 employees stood by, dumbstruck. They had apparently been gathered for some time, but none had had the heart to fetch Tesla and break the news to him. When a New York Times reporter approached him, Tesla waved him away, saying, I am in too much grief to talk. What can I say? The work of half my lifetime, very nearly, all my mechanical instruments and scientific apparatus, that it has taken years to perfect, swept away in a fire that lasted only an hour or two. How can I estimate the loss in mere dollars and cents? Everything is gone. I must begin over again. Tesla staggered away. Utterly disheartened and broken in spirit, Nikola Tesla, one of the world's greatest electricians, returned to his rooms at the Gerlach yesterday morning and took to his bed reported the New York Herald the next day. He has not risen since. He lies there, half sleeping, half waking. He is completely prostrated. The fire and destruction of Tesla's lab was worldwide news, highlighting both the personal and public significance. Headlines read things like, Work of half a lifetime gone, and Fruits of genius swept away. 
In London, the electrical world reported Tesla's physical collapse. The magazine Current Literature said of Tesla's loss, quote, To have all of his innumerable marvels swept away at one stroke is a calamity to the whole world as well as to himself. Charles A. Dana of the New York Sun, one of the most revered newspaper editors of his day, wrote in a special editorial the day of the fire, The destruction of Nikola Tesla's workshop, with its wonderful contents, is something more than a private calamity. It is a misfortune to the whole world. It is not in any degree an exaggeration to say that the men living at this time who are more important to the human race than this young gentleman can be counted on the fingers of one hand, perhaps on the thumb of one hand. Tesla's losses were total. The major part of his fortune was invested in the apparatus in that building. Most of his devices were custom-built, one-of-a-kind, and irreplaceable, and he carried no insurance on any of it. But the monetary loss was secondary. The Tesla laboratory was, in a sense, a private museum, T.C. Martin wrote. The owner kept in it many souvenirs of bygone toil and experiment. Perhaps the most painful loss of all is the destruction of Mr. Tesla's notes and papers. His memory is all right, and flashes on any experiment of the past with the revealing power of a searchlight, but the time it will take for the inventor to recreate his ongoing investigations will also cost other experimenters years of sweat and pain. All his specially designed dynamos, oscillators, motors, vacuum bulbs, not to mention all his records, papers, correspondence, mementos, his World's Fair exhibit, all gone. A real kick in the teeth was the fact that Tesla had just recently brought all his notes and papers to the lab in order to start organizing them. Along with his apparatus, Tesla estimated he lost $80,000 to $100,000 in his own investment in the laboratory. That's between $2.6 and $3.3 million today. Far more costly were the lost years of work, however. Some of his apparatus existed in similar form elsewhere, his dynamos and oscillators and motors, but his newly developed wireless transmitters and receivers were unique and would all have to be completely rebuilt. As Tesla himself later said, a million dollars could not have compensated for the setback in his research. And that's a million dollars in 1895 money. Knowing his delicate mental state, Tesla's friends were worried for his well-being. Robert and Catherine Johnson searched for Tesla around the city at his usual haunts, but to no avail. An emotional letter from Catherine, written the day after the fire, finally reached Tesla some days later, probably at the Gerlach Hotel. She told of their search and the hope of consoling him in his, quote, irreparable loss. It seemed as if you too must have dissipated into thin air, wrote Catherine. Do let us see you again in the flesh that this awful thought may vanish, she implored. Today, with the deepening realization of the meaning of this disaster, and consequently with increasing anxiety for you, my dear friend, I am even poorer except in tears, and they cannot be sent in letters. Why will you not come to us now? Perhaps we might help you. We have so much to give in sympathy. For his part, Tesla downplayed the fire at his lab in his 1918 brief biography, perhaps not wishing to dwell on past tragedy. He described reaching... Quote, tensions of about a million volts with my conical coil, with steady progress being made, quote, until the destruction of my laboratory by fire in 1895, as may be judged from an article by T.C. Martin, which appeared in the April number of the Century magazine. This calamity set me back in many ways, and most of that year had to be devoted to planning and reconstruction. However, as soon as circumstances permitted, I returned to the task. Next time, we'll look at the remainder of 1895 and how Tesla began to return to the task and move on with his grand plan, bringing wireless power to the world. 
we'll also see how he kicked himself for missing out on a new discovery that he'd actually made years earlier. Thanks for listening to Tesla The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy it, or share a link to the show on your social media. If you haven't had a chance to leave a rating or review wherever you happen to get your podcasts, please take a minute to do so now. The show is available more places than ever, including on Spotify, Audible, and Amazon Music. Past episodes, as well as the show notes for this episode, can be found on our website at teslapodcast.com. Stay up to date with the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at kottowich.com or on Twitter with the handle at ourmancotto. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kottowich.